February 15, 1898, USS Maine was docked in Havana Harbor in Cuba. There was an explosion on the ship. It sank with all 260 soldiers or sailors on board. Spain insisted they had nothing to do with it because they were being accused of bombing the, the Maine. And so Spain sent investigators, the U.S. sent investigators to try to figure out what caused this explosion. Result of those investigations result, or showed no conclusive information. There was no clear way or understanding what it was that caused the explosion. Well, there were some within the government who wanted the U.S. to go to war with Spain. There were other issues going on, and, and there were some that thought it would be best to go to war with Spain. There were some within the media, unlike, uh, not unlike what we see going on in our world today, who also wanted the same thing. So, some in the government there and, and some in the New York Times collaborated together and created a story that had no basis in fact for the sole purpose of riling up the American populace to force President McKinley to go to war. And that's exactly what they did. They published this story in the New York Times that had no basis in truth, and it caused the American population to rise up and say, enough, we need to go with Spain, or go against Spain. And so we did, and the war was finally declared the Spanish-American War. Now, the war itself only lasted 10 weeks, so it's not in terms of how wars tend to go. It wasn't a very long war, and in terms of how wars go, very few people actually died during the Spanish-American War, but it led to some other conflicts that resulted in many, many deaths. You see, thousands of people ended up losing their lives. Lives were forever changed. Our cultures were forever altered because of a few people and their careless words. You've heard me say this before, but words are powerful. Words have significant ability to cause destruction, or to bring healing. Likely, many of us here will never have the, if you want to use it in such a negative way, opportunity to, to where our words could have that level of destruction. Something that would later result in hundreds of thousands of lives affected. But nonetheless, our words matter. We've been moving through the book of James, the letter of James in the New Testament, uh, that James wrote to Christians who were struggling through some very difficult times. For his readers, James's readers, there were some who were already going through some pretty difficult times because of the persecution on them for being Christians. Others, what was to come was even worse than what they were going through. And so James was writing this letter to encourage them to have an unyielding faith in the face of whatever came their way. Well, this next section that we'll be looking at in a moment it addresses that topic. Another one of those aspects of the, the, the idea of having an unyielding faith. The topic that really kind of points to situations such as the Spanish-American War or any other situation within our lives. Now, if you want, you can turn. Now, I'll get to it in just a second. We'll be in James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you're following along in the Version app, the words will be listed there when I get there as well, but they'll be on the screen. But our words, we have to remember, they matter. What we say, what we write, what we type on a computer, put onto a, a phone screen, what we say has an impact 
on those who interact with our words. A positive impact or a negative impact. What we say can bring healing. What we say can bring destruction. Our words, they matter. We must always be aware of that reality. Now, as I said, James wrote this letter, the book of James. He wrote it to encourage believers who who are going through difficult times to have an unyielding faith, to not succumb to the pressure that was on them. As we look at our words and what it is that we, we, we have to say, well, there's pressure on us sometimes to say things that maybe we shouldn't. We need to have an unyielding faith. So, picking it up now, James chapter 3, verses 1-12. through 12. James wrote this. He says, And not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what he says is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets a whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. See, James here is addressing a crucial issue for us today. And the crucial issue revolves around this simple question. Who is the master of our words? Who's the master of our words? Who is in control of what it is that we have to say? Who dictates and directs what comes out of our mouth or flows from our fingers? So this section of James gives us a few considerations as we're trying to understand about our spoken, unyielding faith. So let's dig in a little bit more just to understand uh, how to apply these truths. So the first consideration is this is that we need, we need to consider who the audience is. Who is James talking to, in other words? Well, James tells us early on in this section exactly who he's talking to. His audience is fellow believers. We catch this because of what he said. He said, fellow believers. You see, as Christians, we have to remember that we as Christ followers, we cannot hold non-believers to the same standard we hold believers to. James isn't uh, giving license for Christians to attack non-Christians for their, what, the words that they say. They will be judged by God because of a key issue. And that is their lack of relationship with Christ. All the things that they do in life, 
all the things they say, no matter how horrible they may be, their primary issue is not what they say. Their primary issue is the lack of a relationship with Christ. That is the main issue. You see, apart from a relationship with Christ, when that day comes that we stand before God, if we do not have a relationship with Christ, then we stand before God in our own righteousness, which Paul put it quite plainly, quite clearly, is that my righteousness, the best that I could ever do, is filthy rags. It, it, it pales in comparison to what should be. So a person outside of Christ, without that relationship, well, there isn't any hope for them. We cannot expect, you see, to be saved if there is no relationship with Christ. But if there is a relationship with Christ, in that relationship, when that day comes that we find ourselves standing face to face with God, well, we are covered with Jesus' sacrifice. So all of the sins that we have committed are covered. They are taken care of because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. In that relationship with Christ, we will then experience grace the forgiveness of our sins. So as we begin this discussion here, talking about our words and the spoken, unyielding faith that we are to have, we have to remember that this conversation is toward believers. New Testament gives repeatedly uh, throughout. It gives believers the responsibility of holding other believers accountable for their actions. We're given authority to call other believers to account for their behaviors that are not in line with how God has given us to be. We're to do this out of love, to help other believers grow in our faith. So here, James, James is doing just that. When he says fellow believers, James was talking to believers in a conversation that happens between believers. But he goes on. James is also talking not just to believers, but he narrows it in a little bit for a short period of time on teachers, the teachers in those churches. Apparently, there were uh, many people in those churches who were presuming to be teachers, as some translations put the word in there. They, many people wanted to be a teacher in the church. Then there, even to today, there are various reasons why some people step forward to be a teacher in a church. Oftentimes, it's for the perceived uh, concept of maybe the prestige, the perceived prestige that comes with it, or maybe the prestige, or, uh, perceived uh, authority that comes with it, having people look to you as a, a source of information. Sometimes for some people, that is a, a, a drive or a, a call for them to step forward. And James is saying, not many of you should be teachers. See, James warns of the realities of being a teacher. Realities that are still true just as much today as they were then. You see, as James said, teachers will be judged more strictly. Preachers and teachers, you see, we have bigger targets on us. We have bigger targets on us. We oftentimes, when you're talking about between people, a teacher or a preacher has every word that they will ever say, every word they would ever write. It will be criticized and it will be looked at for what is wrong with it and very little grace is given when there is something wrong so from a personal perspective from person to person teachers other people are going to judge you more strictly is what james is saying for ministers any any type of ministry for them 
that they, the minister and their family, often live their life in a fishbowl. Everybody examines and criticizes pieces, and if not every aspect of their life. As a matter of fact, I read about one minister who has to have a police escort every Sunday after church to his car because the criticism is that bad. So James here is warning a truth that is still true even to today. Not many people should be teachers because you need to understand you're going to be judged more strictly than other people by people. But there's more to that than, than just interpersonal criticism. God, you see, has higher standards for those who would be teachers than He does for other people, and rightly so. I mean, a teacher is handling God's Word. They need to handle God's Word properly to make sure they don't teach things that are incorrect or lead people in ways that go against what God teaches. I mean, you look at the requirements for an elder who's expected to teach as well or be able to teach. God's expectations of an elder are pretty high. People look to teachers as models for how to live. Their class, their group of people they are interacting with, they model many times what it looks like to follow Christ. And God has high expectations on those who would be teachers. God expects them to be more obedient, to, to exam, exhibit greater self-control. Personally, I know I hold myself to a higher standard because I know one day I will stand before God. And I believe that God will hold me to a, a stronger account because I am a teacher. So James here at the beginning, he says not many should presume to be teachers or not many should desire to be teachers. In other words, if you want to be a teacher, count the cost first. Not that you shouldn't be a teacher, but count the cost and understand the reality behind it. But then James expands this concept, not only teachers who you need to control what you say, as he goes on to talk about, but he expands this concept to a conversation between, not just among teachers. When he said, we all stumble in many ways, he was pointing to everybody else. You see, all believers are lumped in here. So even if you aren't a teacher, you're part of the we all component. All believers. We have to be careful what it is that we say. Interestingly, the word translated as stumble there, it often points to the idea of sin. We all sin in many ways, James is saying. Sinning with our words, it isn't just a teacher-preacher issue. This is something every single one of us struggles at at one point or another. It's as if James is saying, Make sure that to remember this the next time somebody criticizes you, says something wrong to you. Remember, we all stumble in many ways. So maybe the next time somebody says something that was a bit hurtful, extend grace first because we all stumble, we all sin in many ways, including our own words toward other people. By the end of verse 2, though, James begins to point to the heart of the matter. And that is the issue. Verse 2, James uh, 3, 2, he says, Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Whoever is perfect. The idea with perfect, it indicated, it indicated more of a, a, la, or a uh, um, lacking any moral... Uh, not lacking, sorry about that, lost track of my words there. Uh, perfect indicated not lacking any moral quality. It's less about perfection and more about being complete. 
maybe even carrying the idea of being mature. You could almost read it this way, as anyone who is never at fault in what they say is mature and able to keep their whole body in check. The issue is, is someone who has learned to keep their words in check will also end up being able to keep their whole life in check. It's interesting because later on in the section I just read, James seems to indicate that it's impossible for us to keep our tongue in check. So what's the deal? How can he say at the beginning that if you can do that, then you better keep your body in check, but later on to say, no, you can't do that? Well, looking over to a teaching that Jesus gave can help us to understand what James was pointing at here. One day Jesus was teaching about how it is that a person can be saved. And he was using some different examples. But one of the examples that he gave was that in coming to God, we have to be willing to unburden ourselves of everything. Give everything over to God. And, and the idea of taking everything that we would consider us, ours, and giving it to God, his disciples were left with the question. Matthew 19, verses 25 and 26. When the disciples heard this, that is that we must give everything up, when we come to God, that our relationship with God is based on God and not us, that we are saved because of who God is, not because of what we do. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, by ourselves, we can't get to where we need to be. We cannot be good enough to save ourselves. God is the one who does what we can't do. And God, even in our lives, helps us to accomplish what we can't do. So God helps us to be obedient by providing assistance to us in three ways. God helps us to make sure that our words are what they should be by helping us in three ways. First way is by providing the church as a source of strength and accountability. See, being a part of a church is not just a matter of I get to come into church on Sunday morning, listen to the preacher babble on for too long, and then I get to go home and have lunch. That's not what church is about. Church is about encouraging each other, building each other up, being there for each other. Sometimes, sometimes even challenging or correcting each other when we begin to drift from what God has for us. Galatians 6.2 challenges believers to carry one another's burdens. Romans 15.1 challenges the more mature believers to help the less mature believers. See, the church is provided by God to strengthen and challenge believers toward greater obedience. Helping us to understand how to do that as we work with each other. Secondly, God answers our prayers. That's another way that He helps us to be obedient. He answers our prayers for help in being obedient to his commands. James talked about in chapter 1 about how if any of us lacks wisdom, we can ask God who loves to give it. So as we're looking at our life and we're struggling in obedience, maybe, maybe we keep finding the wrong words falling out of our mouth or maybe crawl, crossing over the screen through our phone or our computer. Well, James says, if you're lacking wisdom to know how to control that, you want to have an unyielding faith in the face of whatever comes your way, including even in your words, Ask God for wisdom how to overcome that. God loves to give answers to that. He loves to give you wisdom to be able to conquer that stuff. And third, a third way that God helps us to be obedient in what it is that we say as well as the rest of our life is that God Himself helps us through the Holy Spirit living inside of us. If you are a Christ follower, you have God living inside of you. 
In Ephesians 3.16, Paul was praying for believers, and he prayed that God would strengthen those believers through the power of the Holy Spirit, strengthen them so they could be obedient, so they could live the life that God had given them. Philippians 2.13 teaches that the Holy Spirit is at work inside believers, creating a desire for obedience as well as the ability to obey. See, this is one of those areas that we must work at. God is at work inside of us, but we have to work at listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So as you're reading your Bible, as you're spending time there, God will help you to see better what God expects so that when you pray, you'll have a better basis to begin with. Then, as you're going throughout your day, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind those passages that you've read to help you to be more obedient. We need to follow the advice of Proverbs 14, 15, where it says the prudent give thought to their steps. Planning ahead, thinking ahead, thinking before we speak or we act, listening instead to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So as we spend time in the Word, as we spend time praying, as we spend time encouraging each other, before those words come out of our mouth, pause for a moment and think, is this something God would want me to do? Look for God's leading in that. You see, self-control is the key. Rather than letting our mouth or our fingers say whatever it is that comes to mind, instead of letting them loose, look to God's guiding in life. Don't react to everything that crosses your path. Not everything needs an answer. Not everything needs a response from us. Be self-controlled in your speech. Think before you speak. And James says that if we learn that, if we learn how to listen to God's leading so that what comes out of our mouth is only the good stuff, if we learn that, we will also learn how to control our bodies, the whole of our life, so that we can be obedient to all that God has for us so we can be mature back to that proverb give thought to your steps your actions your thought processes even before you do what comes to mind think ahead plan obedience instead of what comes naturally by ourselves this really is an impossible task it's impossible for humans to tame the tongue but with God all things are possible there is no limit to what God can do. God is inside of you. If you are a Christ follower, He is inside of you and will help you. And in when the temptation comes to say what shouldn't be said, He provides the way out so you don't fall in to that sin. One last point here before we move on. Remember grace. Grace toward you and grace toward other people. God's grace really is sufficient for all of our sins. Romans 8.1 Every time we fall short, God's grace is there. Every time somebody else falls short, we need to extend grace. Accept God's grace. Give God's grace. For those who said hurtful things to you, forgive them just as God has forgiven you. Remember what, what James wrote here. We all stumble. We all sin in many ways. There's a time to speak and a time to remain silent. Weigh out if those words really need to be said. Are they helpful? Are they beneficial? Will they encourage somebody? This is where self-control comes in. And as we learn to listen to God here, in, in what it is that we're going to say, before we say it, it will help us 
so we can be obedient in the rest of life. James also talked about, though, what happens when we don't do this or when we do. He talked about the results. Verse 6, he says, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. You see, the result of our words are either good or they are bad. And they set the direction for our life. If we choose to allow words to be whatever it is that we feel at the moment, then what we do is we bring destruction everywhere we go. However, if we choose to live self-controlled lives, we bring healing and help wherever we go. James in this section used three different examples. He talked about uh, horses, bits, bits in the mouths of horses. He talked about uh, rudders on ships, and he talked about a fire. So in James's day, horses were very important for getting work done. A horse that had a bit in its mouth and was tamed could help to get a lot of work done. A whole lot more than one person could get done, or even a group of people could get done. A horse that didn't, wasn't trained, didn't have a bit in its mouth, well, that wasn't much help. He talked about the rudder on a ship, and that if the rudder was working properly, it could direct the ship to exactly where they wanted to go, even going against the wind to get to where they wanted to go. Safely delivering people, safely delivering cargo, but if the rudder ever broke, well, then the ship is at the mercy of the winds, and oftentimes there would be loss, loss of lives, loss of cargo. He talked about fire. Well, we all know fire can be good. Fire can also be pretty destructive. You know, with winter only a few months away, you know, I think of it this way, is I could light a fire in my fireplace and it could heat my house. That's a good thing. I could, heat, I could light a fire in my house, outside the fireplace, it would heat my house, but it wouldn't be a very good thing. We understand this reality in terms of having control and the good and the bad that can come from these things. That's what James was talking about. Our words, well, they help to shape the direction bringing good or bad. And James here taught that the tongue corrupts the whole body, the course of life, in other words. You ever say something that you wish you could take back? I know I have. I have said things in the past that oh, I think about them and I cringe, and I just cannot believe those words actually came out of my mouth. Some of the things that I said before I came to Christ are horrendous, and I would never want to ever have that happen again. But we make statements that we can't erase. We can't take back. They're out there. They are permanently out there. Once our words are out, they are out. By taking control of our tongue, by taking control of our tongue before we say something, we end up taking control of each individual statement before it has a chance to cause destruction. We may, you see, earn trust. Earning trust takes years. It often takes a very long time to earn other people's trust. But one single statement in a moment can destroy years of trust. We may spend years developing a good reputation. One statement said in the wrong way, one ill-thought-out statement can ruin that reputation. Our words are pretty powerful things. It doesn't take much. Once it's out there, the damage is done. And it takes a lot of work to rebuild. 
Our words can do significant damage if left uncontrolled. By taking, though, control of our tongue, taking control of our words, we, the entire course of our life can be permanently altered in a positive way. We can work at re-earning that trust, at rebuilding that reputation. And yes, it takes time. It's not that just because we say we're sorry, everything's perfect, it doesn't necessarily work that way. But we can, with our words, rebuild any damage we've done over time. But some things, some things unfortunately never can be fixed because of our words. I think again to the, the events around the Spanish-American War and how many lives were lost and damaged because of careless words spoken. Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but, and now here's the hope part, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. James even goes so far as to indicate that hell itself is behind the destructive nature of our words, the destructiveness of our words. You know what? I believe him. I'm sure you do too, because you've probably seen some of this stuff as I have. You've heard me say it before, but some of the, the worst treatment that I've ever received in life has come at the hands of Christians. Some of the meanest things I have heard said to me came from people in the name of Christ. As Christians, we can say some pretty nasty stuff veiled under the idea of we're following Christ. It shouldn't be, James says. Words are powerful. Words can do damage and words can bring good. James makes a point of stating that our words as believers, they really should be good things. Verse 10, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. You see, God has better plans for Christians than tearing each other apart. God has better plans for Christians than tearing other people apart. You see, every time that we say something negative about or to somebody else, what we're really doing is we're actually attacking God. James made it pretty clear, and he says that we, we are created in God's image, in His likeness. So when we attack somebody else, guess what? We're not just attacking them, we're attacking God because they're image bearers of God's. What we're doing when we attack other people, when we say those bad things, we're actually saying that about God. Kind of interesting thought there. The result of unwise words is destruction. The result of wise words, a wise person, is healing. Which now takes us over to the purpose. What is the purpose of our words in this unyielding faith that we are to have? Well, Paul gave instructions on the purpose of our words in a passage I often use. This is one of those passages, in my opinion, is one you should really memorize. Ephesians 4.29, where he said that believers are to say what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I often repeat that in my mind. Is what I'm about to say building others up? Is what I'm about to write going to benefit the people who listen? See, Paul there pointed to the purpose of our words and they are to be beneficial. They are to be building other people up. You see, for us to have this unyielding faith in the face of whatever it is that life comes our way, we need to have control of our words. We need to understand that there is a purpose for our words. Remember what I said a moment ago. God provided the church as a source of encouragement for believers to remain faithful to God. Our words are to be used for good, building others up, 
benefiting others. It requires of us then to monitor what we're going to say, to not just open the floodgates of our mouth and let whatever fall out, or our fingers. Too many times in today's world, people hide behind a computer screen and let their mouth fly via words. They say stuff that shouldn't be said, not only just in person, but just plain should not be said. Believers, that is not what should be. Our words are to be used for good. We need to keep our words in check. All of our words. The purpose of our words are to be beneficial, to be a source of encouragement for others. For believers, to encourage them toward greater obedience, toward loving God, toward experiencing God's grace. Toward non-believers, our words are to be in such a way that it helps them to see that God loves them too and wants to save them if they will turn to, their, to His Son. See, our words are powerful. The result of our words have good or bad consequences. So finally now, that takes us to the dilemma. The dilemma I posed at the beginning, revolving around that one question, who is the master of your words? Who's the master of your words? Is it just whatever you feel in the moment? Or is it God? This really is our choice. Nobody else can answer this question for you. Nobody else can make this decision for you. Each and every one of us, we all sin in many ways. Each and every one of us have got to take control of our words. Not that we can take control in and of ourselves, but we need to lean into God. Listen for the leading of the Spirit. This is the dilemma we face. Do we allow our words to be set on fire by the fires of hell? Or do we allow our words to be led by the love of God? That's the dilemma that we face. That's a choice we're given every day, every moment, every time words come into our mind. We decide the direction that we go with them. Nobody else does. But you know what? We're not alone. I've been talking about it all along this morning. We are not alone. If you are a Christ follower, you are not alone in taking control of those words that want to come out of your mouth. James made it clear that by ourselves, we cannot do this. However, With God, all things are possible. So how do we let God help us control our words? It starts by something you've heard me say a multitude of times. need to spend time reading the Word. need to spend time reading the Bible. Because when we spend time reading the Bible, we discover what it is that God wants for us. We need to spend time praying. Because as we spend time praying, we learn to hear God's voice. We learn to discern the the leading of the Spirit. We need to develop that relationship with God so that we can go where God is leading us. If we don't have those types of things in our life, how do we know that we are following God if we're not reading His Word? The Bible is the only place we're going to find that. We, We learn how to control our words because of our relationship, our time with God. So the dilemma still is, who is the master of our words? As you go through this week, allow that question to run in your mind. Allow that question to permeate your thoughts before the words come out. Who's the master of my words? Look for the leading of the Spirit. Weigh what you're going to say based on what you've read in the Bible. Is what I'm wanting to say, is what's coming to mind, is that something God would say, yes, say that. Or not? Is Ephesians 4.29, is what is coming to mind to come out of my mouth or out of my fingers, 
Is it going to build other people up? Is it going to benefit people? Is it going to help those who will interact with my words? If not, if not, I shouldn't say it. Our lives, our words, if we can learn to listen to God to control what comes out of our mouth, it'll help us for the rest of our lives. It'll help us in the rest, the rest of the areas of our life. Our whole body will be able to come into check so we can live the way that God created us to live a little more easily.